Let's pray. Father, you remind us in Psalm 119 that your word is more precious than gold and silver. And we're praying that today, as we hear from your word, that we would value it as that treasure that it truly is, that we would recognize these really are your words. We pray that this would not be an idle exercise for us today, but rather that we would listen intently, knowing that your word is so precious, and it's precious because it's your word, and because ultimately it points us to your son, Jesus Christ. And so even today, as we are in the Old Testament, Father, we are praying that you'd be gracious to us. And that you would help us to recognize the value of your word and help us to hear the voice of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray today. Amen. So for the last two weeks now, we've been talking about the book of Jonah. And as I've said the last couple of weeks, there are a few stories in the Bible that are well known and as memorable as the story of Jonah. At some level, I don't even need to say that because we know it's true. As we've said from the start of this book, almost everyone, including non-Christians, have at least some hint of the background or some idea about the background of the story of Jonah. And for those who've grown up in the church, likely you've heard this story over and over and over again. But what's interesting about the retelling of the story of Jonah is that oftentimes we exclusively focus on chapters 1 and 2. Now occasionally in chapter 3 may be thrown in as an epilogue of sorts to the story, but chapter 4 for the most part is completely dismissed. Take for example the children's storybook Bible that I brought with me just a few weeks ago. This particular book had only 11 pages. The first 10 pages were exclusively content from chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Jonah. Only on the last, the 11th of the 11 pages, only on the 11th page do we find anything related to chapters 3 and 4. And here is what that last page says. I'm quoting here. God told Jonah a second time, Go and tell the people of Nineveh to stop doing bad things. This time Jonah did. And that is the way that the story ends. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. For one, it completely dismisses all of chapter 4. Now, that's actually a pretty common problem in the retelling of the story of Jonah is that chapter 4 gets almost no run. But here's the other problem. When it simply says, God told, none of, or, God told Jonah a second time, go and tell the people of Nineveh to stop doing bad things. This time Jonah did. When the story is retold in that way, it completely understates it completely takes away from the drama of chapter 3. There is an intense drama that takes place there, and to end it by saying God told Jonah to go, and he did, takes away from some of the drama of what happens in chapter 3. Listen, there is no doubt that what takes place with Jonah and the fish at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 is amazing stuff. But I think you can make the argument, and in fact I'm going to make that argument today, that what happens in chapter 3 is even more incredible. And so for that reason alone, I'm excited for us. There's other reasons too, but this one in particular, the fact that it's such a dramatic story and it's so amazing what happens, I'm excited for us to turn our attention today to chapter 3. So let's go ahead and read here the entire chapter in its context. We're just going to read the story to make sure that we can get it in all of its context. And then we'll come back and rather than reading individual verses like we've done the last couple of weeks, I'll just kind of make some comments about the story in general, hopefully to make it make more sense. So Jonah 3 here, starting in verse 1, and as we read, let me remind you, this indeed is the word of God. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented excuse me, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now it's interesting here that as chapter 3 opens, the first two verses of chapter 3 are almost identical to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Now there are a few small differences and perhaps those are instructive, but for the most part, it's identical to chapter 1. You may remember how the story opens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and said, Arise, go to Nineveh. That's repeated almost verbatim here in chapter 2. Arise, go to Nineveh. I think the author is trying to remind us and communicate to us intentionally and deliberately that Jonah is being given a second chance. The big difference, of course, is that in this case, Jonah actually goes. In verse 3, you may remember from chapter 1, he arises, but then he heads in the opposite direction. But here, he arises and he goes to Nineveh. Now, it likely would have taken Jonah about a month to get to Nineveh. So he had plenty of time to think about what he was about to do. And I think it's fair, as much as we criticize Jonah rightly in chapter 1 for his actions, I think it's fair for us to point out here that what Jonah is being asked to do is not a task for the faint of heart. We're told here in chapter 3 that Nineveh was a great city. One of the reasons why this may have been a difficult task is just because of the stature of the city itself. In chapter 3 it says it's a great city, approximately three days in breadth. Now, we're not exactly for, for sure what that means. It was three days in breadth. Does it mean possibly that it would take three days to start on one side of the city and walk the other? It's possible, although what we know geographically about Nineveh at the time would make us think maybe that's not what it means. Perhaps it means that it would take three days to preach in the entire city, going from one part of the street to the next or one street to the next. That possibly it would take three days to weave through all the streets and preach. It's possible that when it says three days, it means the first day he arrives, the second day he preaches, the third day he leaves. Or it's also possible that this idea of greater Nineveh, or the great city of Nineveh, is referring to the surrounding area around Nineveh, greater Nineveh. We might say it, the greater New York area. It's possible that, that that's what it means as well. We're not entirely for sure. But the point is, whether we're talking about a city or just its surrounding area around the city, the point is, is that this is not a place of small stature. This is an impressive city. And of course, more than its size, Nineveh would have been intimidating based on its reputation. Nineveh, as we've said before, was a part of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were the most brutal people alive at the time. At the, time. Excuse me. the Assyrians were proud of their terrible reputation. In fact, one of the reasons that we know so much about their brutality is because the Assyrians went to great trouble to record their heinous acts. Impaled heads, pulled out tongues, burning people alive, cutting off hands, cutting off feet, cutting off noses, cutting off ears. All of it was a part of the Assyrian campaign of fear. And on top of that, and this would have been obviously important for Jonah, they hated the Israelites. And so I think when we take all that into account, the size of the city, 
the fact that the Syrians had such a brutal reputation, the fact that they had a hatred for Israelites, I think we need to give some credit here to Jonah where credit is due. To go and preach to the Ninevites would not have been an easy task. It would have been terrifying, especially given the message that he is to deliver. The message Jonah delivers here is just five words in the Hebrew. It's eight in the English. It says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not exactly the type of message that you would typically want to give if you're trying to make friends. Now, I think, as always is the case with the Bible, there's a danger that because we're removed from the situation, that we can just read over this and not really put ourselves or inject ourselves into the story and think about what must this have been like for Jonah. So let me try to give you maybe a modern example of what this might look like. Imagine that one of us was asked to head straight to the country of one of our enemies, just for the sake of... Um, just trying to think of an illustration, let's just say Iran, okay? Uh, I, I don't know if, I would imagine not everyone in Iran hates Americans, but generally speaking, it seems that there's animosity between our country and Iran. And imagine that you were called to go to the heart of Iran, to Tehran, to the capital city, and you were to go and you were to preach this exact message, yet 40 days and Tehran shall be overthrown. Now, I would guess that that probably would not go well. I would guess that you would not be received with parades and the people would not be clapping for you as you're walking down the middle of the city proclaiming this. In fact, I would guess that you would have every reason to fear for your safety, especially if you're throwing in this idea that you've rebelled against God and therefore you're about to be overthrown. But I think that's a comparable situation to what Jonah is facing here when he's going to the Ninevites and warning them of their impending destruction. And so again, if we're just following what we would normally expect in the book of Jonah, we would expect that this is not going to end well for Jonah, but the book takes another turn. Because something miraculous happens here in chapter 3. The Ninevites believe Jonah's message. More specifically, they believe God. That's actually a key line here in chapter 3. It's not just that the Ninevites believe Jonah and his message. They believe God is what we're told here in chapter 3. We're told they believe, in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. From the least of them to the greatest, they respond. They fast, they put on sackcloth. These were signs of grief and humility and repentance. Sackcloth was a thick, coarse cloth, usually made of goat's hair. It would not be comfortable, it would not be fashionable. You don't wear sackcloth because you're trying to make a fashion statement. You wore sackcloth to symbolize that you are rejecting all earthly comfort. You wore sackcloth because you recognize that you were in despair. And these Ninevites, make no mistake about it, they were in despair because of their sin. And not just some of them, not just some of them, but all of them. This is a response that reaches every corner of Nineveh. Even the king himself steps down from his throne, removes his robe, covers himself in sackcloth, and sits in ashes. Kings don't do this. This is an obvious sign to us of the desperation of the people. Perhaps an even more obvious sign to us of the desperation, though, is the fact that the king commands that even the animals would fast and put on sackcloth. If that seems strange to you, it should. Listen, uh, this was strange even in their culture. It would certainly be strange in our culture as well. We don't dress up our cats or our dogs when we're grieving. We don't dress them up in black. At least uh, the people I've known have never done that. And certainly I can say with certainty that I've never driven past a field of cattle or a field of sheep and seen the sheep clothed in sackcloth or, or clothed in black for that matter. This is not something that we do in our culture. This is not necessarily something that happens in this culture on a common basis. 
But the fact that the Ninevites are doing this, I think, shows us how desperate that they were. They're going to great lengths to make sure that they have not left any stone unturned. Even if it means doing things that make no sense. They are not taking any chances. They want to show that in every way they are sick about their sin. On a practical level, you have to imagine that every time they heard one of the animals making a noise out of hunger, or every time they walked by a field and saw cattle or whatever it was dressed in sackcloth, you'd have to imagine they were reminded of their own guilt, and perhaps that's also the reason for why they do what they do. This is serious. And unless you think that they're just doing this outwardly, and that they're not concerned about their actions, that they're just going through some sort of religious festival here, or some sort of religious motion, in verse 8, the, kings make it, the king makes it clear that they are also deterred from their evil ways. He doesn't deny the sin. He doesn't try to lessen it. He says, no, we need to turn from our violent and wicked ways. And then in verse 9, he says, perhaps the Lord will re- relent. And that's exactly what happens in verse 10. God does relent. He does not send the disaster that the Ninevites might have been expecting or, frankly, that they deserved. Instead, he shows mercy. It's a bit of a shift in the story, actually. To this point, we have largely been focusing on Jonah. Now, we've talked about the fact that the story is really not about Jonah, but from a human perspective, that's exactly what we've been focusing on for the first two chapters. The attention has been on Jonah, but now here, in chapter 3, the attention shifts, and we're not talking about Jonah so much. He plays a very, very small role in this chapter. Instead, we're focusing our human attention on the Ninevites. And what happens with the Ninevites here is nothing short of amazing. An entire city, potentially even an entire region, depending on how you take this comment about the size of Nineveh, hears a message from God and repents. Surely this is one of the great revivals of all time. It's hard for us to even fathom what happens here. Imagine if I were to go into the city of Tehran and I were to preach Tehran, Iran. And I were to preach, 40 more days in the city will be overturned. And dramatically, the entire city converted to Christ. That would be the equivalent of what happened here. This is incredible. And it's even more incredible when we think about just the way our lives are currently. Week after week, every single Sunday, I pray. I pray and I ask that there would be someone who would come to our service, who would not know Christ, who would hear the good news about Christ, who would repent of their sin and trust Christ. I pray and I pray that this happens and I know that other people are praying for this too and yet it seldom happens. But Jonah, on the other hand, goes into the city, preaches for one or maybe up to three days max and the entire city repents. The entire city. As I mentioned, I think this is even more amazing than Jonah's survival in the fish. This is the bigger miracle in the book of Jonah. But as impressed as we are here by the response of the Ninevites, It shouldn't come as a surprise to us that in the end, this is really a passage about God. Now, we'll come back to the response of the Ninevites because I do think that there's something we can learn here from the way that the Ninevites respond. But, as has been the case throughout the book of Jonah and as will continue to be the case, ultimately, this is a book that is meant to draw our attention upward. It's meant to draw our attention to God and to see how He is working. And of course, ultimately, it's meant to point us to Christ. This particular passage, I think, is meant to highlight, first and foremost, the mercy and compassion of God. Listen, if there was anyone who deserved the justice and wrath of God, surely it was the Ninevites. The Assyrians were wickedly brutal people. They opposed God and they hated God's people. 
when God threatens the Ninevites with punishment, it's not an undeserved threat. For the record, it's not an idle threat either. The word that's used here where Jonah's talking about how the city will be overthrown, this is the same word that's used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah. And certainly you can ask Sodom and Gomorrah, that was not an idle threat that God was making towards that city. God is not like a parent who makes some sort of threat but never follows through. And so this is not an idle threat here. And yet something does happen and the story does take a direction that maybe it didn't appear that it was headed in. Now, I think there could be a danger here and we could start to think, well, Jonah was wrong in his message. Or even worse, we may think, well, God was wrong in his message because what Jonah preaches doesn't happen. We may think, well, Jonah didn't know what he was talking about. Or more importantly, God didn't know what he was talking about. After all, God said that he was going to destroy the city of Nineveh, and then it doesn't happen, right? And maybe we're thinking to ourselves, well, God lied. But just for the record, and I think it's really important that we understand this, this is not the case. It's not the case that God lied. It's not even the case that God changed his mind. And the reason I say that is because there is an implied condition in God's warning. It's a condition that God explicitly states in the book of Jeremiah. Now, because I think this is an important issue, let's take some time and turn back to the book of Jeremiah. It's just a few books back to your left. Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. This is a very important passage in order for us to understand what happens here in Jonah 3. So Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up, and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So the condition that's given in Jeremiah 18 is that if God threatens to pluck up or to destroy a nation, and if that nation repents, if they turn from their evil, then God will not send a punishment that's threatened. This is a condition that's implied every time God gives one of these types of warnings. And that is exactly what happens in Jonah 3. God threatens, the people repent, and God relents. Now, I I think that last uh, verse is pretty important as well. Verse 10. And sometimes it's misconstrued a little bit. The word that's used in ESV is relent. In some cases, the word that's used there actually is translated as repent. I think there's even some translations that say changed mind. I don't think those last two are helpful. I don't think it's helpful to say that God repented or that God changed his mind because I don't think that's what happened. I think relent is a much better translation here. God has not changed his mind. He has not repented. Now, from a human perspective, it seems that that is exactly what happened. It seems that that's exactly what happened, that God was saying, I'm going to destroy, and then he changes his mind. But from an eternal and a divine perspective, he knew all along that the Ninevites would repent. And so everything that happens here, the warning, the repentance, and God's relenting, all of it was a part of his plan. So let's be clear here. This is not God changing his mind. This is not God having a change of heart and needing to repent. That's not the case at all. Now, this was all a part of God's plan. This was all a part of the condition which we talked about from Jeremiah 18. So that aside, the question is then, how do you explain what happens here? How do you explain an entire city repenting so quickly and so dramatically? The only explanation, I think, that makes any sense of this story is to say that God is merciful and that he softened the hearts of the people of Nineveh and he did something miraculous. Listen, it was not the preaching of Jonah that changed the people. Now, God may have used the preaching. He may have used the limited preaching that Jonah did, but it's not because Jonah was such a powerful communicator. 
Now, he may have said more than what's recorded here, but again, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. In the English, it's only eight. What he says, or what we're told he says, is short and to the point. And we certainly know from what we read in chapter 4 that Jonah's heart was not in his preaching. And so we may be tempted to say, well, Jonah was just such a gifted preacher. That explains what happens here. And I don't think that's the case at all. Now listen, God does use people. God does use preaching. But when an amazing work of God happens, it's an amazing work of God because God does the work. So don't be tempted to think, oh, Jonah, wow, if we could just preach like Jonah. No, that's not what's happening here at all. This is just an amazing work of God. The Ninevites, disturb, excuse me, the Ninevites deserved wrath and destruction, and instead they get mercy and grace. Now come to think of it, the Ninevites aren't the only one that get that type of treatment in this chapter. Jonah too. Jonah also deserves the wrath and judgment of God. As much as we may admire his courage for preaching here, let's not forget that just two, two chapters ago, he was deliberately running as far away from God as he possibly could go. He is a prophet of God in chapter 1, running from the command of God. And he, make no mistake about it, he deserves God's wrath. And yet, God shows him mercy also. God gives him another chance to go and to obey this command to Nineveh. And this time, of course, Jonah goes. I think that Jonah 3 is a living portrait to us in both the people of the Ninevites and in the person of Jonah. It's a living portrait to us of a truth found in Psalm 103, but that is repeated often in Scripture. That the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And can we just say, that is really good news for the Ninevites. That God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's really, really good news for the Ninevites. It's really good news for Jonah. And it's really good news for us too. Because Ephesians 2 tells us that we, in our nature, were children of wrath. That's true, that maybe we're not as brutal as the Assyrians, and maybe we're not as obvious in our disobedience as Jonah to run from the call to go to Nineveh. But like the Ninevites, and like Jonah, we too, listen, this is, this is the case, we despise the commands of God. And in fact, the Bible is clear, apart from Christ, we hate God. And like the Ninevites, and like Jonah, what we deserve is the wrath of God. And I would guess that if I were to just take a quick poll, how many of you believe that to be true? I would guess that most of you say, yeah, I believe that we deserve the wrath of God. But here's the problem. I don't think that we really believe it. We compare ourselves to people like the Ninevites. We compare ourselves to people like Jonah. We compare ourselves to people like our neighbors. We compare ourselves to people like our coworkers. We compare ourselves to other people in our family, our extended family. And we say to ourselves, I'm not as bad as they are. But listen, the issue is not, are you as bad as the Ninevites? The issue is not, are you as disobedient as Jonah? The issue is not even, are you better than your coworkers from a moral standpoint? Are you better than your neighbors from a moral standpoint? Those are not the questions. The issue is, do you match up to God's standard? In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Is there anyone here today who can say with any sort of earnestness that they meet that standard? Listen, the issue is not do we beat or do we meet or do we exceed the standard of, that's set by other people. The issue is do we meet his standard? Think of it this way. 
Let me give you an analogy, and for the record here, because I want to always be careful to not make it seem like I'm throwing my kids under the bus. This is just an analogy. This has not happened in this way. Now, there may be elements of this story that are based on, on partially true things that have happened, but this this is an analogy, okay? So I, I want you to understand I'm, I'm not trying to discredit my kids. I'm just going to give you a made-up story that hopefully will help you to connect, okay? So this is an analogy. All right, so let's pretend here for a second that we're taking our kids to a birthday party. And we know that there's going to be lots of kids there. And so if you've ever been to a birthday party with kids, you know what that means. It means one thing. It means chaos, right? And so we pull our kids aside before we go to the birthday, <clears throat> before we go to the birthday party and we say to our kids, hey, listen, listen, we want to make sure that you are kind and that you're generous, that you share what you have with others. Do not take toys from other kids and do not hit other kids. And no matter what happens, don't throw tantrums just because some other kid has a toy that you don't want. Right, so we're very explicit. We lay out, this is what we're expecting of you. This is what we want to happen. And so we get to the birthday party and the wheels come off the wagon, right? Like our kids are just a mess. Throughout the course of the afternoon, they are just taking toys left and right from other kids. On occasion, they're even hitting kids, right? Make sure they get toys. They're, they're doing a little bit of boxing. And they're making tantrum throwing look like an Olympic sport throughout the course of the afternoon. And so we get home and we're obviously concerned as parents. We're obviously concerned. We're obviously troubled by what's happened. And so we lay out what's happened and we say, you know, we're just, we are really concerned by what happened, guys. And as we share with them, it's obvious that they are just totally unconcerned. That they are totally not at all concerned about what happened. Instead, they start making excuses like this. Now, uh, I'm going to talk here not in the way of a six-year-old, but this is essentially what they're saying, right? They'll say things like, yeah, we, we, took, we took some toys from other kids, but Johnny, and, and by the way, I'm purposely trying to pick names here that I think no one in the congregation has a kid named this. If, uh, I don't think there's any Johnnies, but if, if somehow I've overlooked a Johnny or a Stevie, who I'll mention here in just a minute, I apologize. I promise I'm not thinking of your kid. But let's, uh, to go back to the story, right? Our, our kids say, well, yeah, we may have took some toys from other kids, but Johnny, Johnny took three times as many toys as we did. And that may have been true, right? Johnny may have taken three times as many toys. And then they say, well, yeah, it's true that we hit a few kids, but, but little Stevie, he was like a professional boxer, right? He was just punching people all day long. And yeah, it's true that we may have thrown some fits. Yeah, that's true. But Susie, she never stopped throwing a fit. Now, here's my question for you as a parent. If you were a parent and this type of situation was happening, and listen, although it may not happen to this extreme, this type of thing does happen in parenting all the time, right? Or they say, yeah, but what about this kid? Or what about what happened here? If you are a parent, should you be impressed by those arguments? Well, if you're a good parent, the answer is no. Why? Because the issue is not how are your kids doing in comparison to other kids. That's a crazy way of thinking. No, rather the issue is how are our kids doing in comparison to the standards we set? Now, hopefully those standards are being driven by the word of God. Hopefully we're not just making them up. Hopefully they're in line with God's truth. But how are our kids doing in line with our standards, not how are they doing in comparison to other kids. That is the standard by which they're measured, our standard. Now, in the same way, and this is really important, the issue is not how are you doing in comparison to other people. The issue is how are you doing in keeping God's standard? And the answer is no one can keep his standard because no one has perfectly obeyed. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As Romans tells us, there is no one no, not one who's done good. And the reason why Romans says that 
is because even when we are apart from Christ and we do seemingly good things, we're doing them for the wrong motives. And so all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are woefully short of the glory of God. There's no exception to this. And listen, all of us will have to give an account to God. Just like our kids have to give an account to us after they come home from a birthday party. If we're good parents, we will have some sort of discussion with them about how this is not acceptable. In the same way that they have to give an account to us, in the same way we will have to give an account to God. The problem is that whatever means of accountability we choose with our kids is nothing in comparison to the accountability that we have before an infinite God whom we have regularly and routinely and joyfully disobeyed. And when I say joyfully, what I mean is that we relish our sin. And the only fitting punishment for disobeying an eternal God is an eternal punishment. And I want to say this as lovingly and pastorally as I can. If you disagree with that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whether you agree with that or not is irrelevant. Because God is the one who decides what is fair and just, not you. And he says that the only fair punishment is an eternal one, hell. I know that the doctrine of hell is not popular. I know that it has come under assault in recent times. But that does not change the fact that it's real. It does not change the fact that hell is a reality. If you go to uh, any Christian website that has a concordance, studylight.org, and you just type in hell, it's interesting how often Jesus talks about hell. Now, maybe you think, oh, he's just doing that to get the crowd's attention, or he's just trying to stir up something. Well, that's clearly not the case. No, the reason why he brings up hell on such a regular basis is because he loved people enough to talk to them about reality. He loved people enough to not gloss over the fact that God must punish sin and that the punishment for disobeying the eternal God is an eternal one. And so if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to follow in his path, then as a church, we need to remind people on a regular basis that yes, it's true, God must punish sin. He will punish those who have disobeyed him. And that includes everyone in this room because Ephesians 2 says again that we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Oh, we deserve the punishment of God. We deserve it. But the good news in this passage and the good news of the Bible is that God is merciful and compassionate, that he is abounding in steadfast love. And we're reminded of that here in Jonah 3 as God shows mercy and compassion to both the Ninevites and to Jonah. And of course, on this side of the cross, we know that ultimately his mercy and compassion is shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. While we're given glimpses of his mercy and compassion throughout the Old Testament stories like this one, it's not until the cross that we see God's love and mercy on full display. Jesus went to the cross because God is just and he must punish sin. And at the same time, he loves us enough that his son would take the punishment for us. It's at the cross where God's justice and his mercy collide. He fully punishes sin like a just God must do. And yet he took the punishment for us because he's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. The mercy and justice of God combined at the cross. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's the danger in saying that. There's a very real danger that we could develop gospel fatigue. That it can feel to us like we've heard so often about Jesus that we stop paying attention. But let me offer this caution. If it seems repetitive to you that we keep talking about Jesus, 
or if it seems boring to you that we keep coming back to this message of Christ, then to paraphrase a quote that I've heard before, if it feels like you've heard the gospel too many times, chances are you've never actually heard it. Now, you may have heard it with your ears, but you've never actually heard it. Because listen, this is the greatest news there ever was. We were dead, but now in Christ we're alive. We were lost, but now in Christ we are found. We deserve wrath, but now instead we've received grace. As Christians, we should never tire of this message. We should never tire of this message because we love to hear about the one who rescued us. When you wake up on Sunday morning, there should be an excitement in you because you know that today you are going to sit with other Christians and you are going to get to hear about Jesus. And every Sunday you should wake up expectantly and you should wake up with joy knowing that today is the day that corporately you will hear about Jesus because you know that this message is what makes you different. This message is what motivates you to work differently when you go to work tomorrow morning. This message is what changes the way you interact with your family. This message is what changes the way that you love people. This message about Jesus dying on the cross is what changes the way you think about difficulty and suffering. This message means that death no longer has its sting. And so every part of your life is affected by this good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we can never leave the message. Our God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And we see that most clearly at the cross. Now that said, I want to be careful here to point something out. Just as there was a condition for the Ninevites to receive God's mercy, there is a condition for us as well. For the Ninevites to receive the mercy of God, they needed to repent. And so too, if we want to receive the mercy of God, we too must repent. Repentance is a word that you've probably heard before, but you may not know exactly what it means. Well, it just so happens here that the Ninevites give us a beautiful picture of what true repentance looks like in Jonah chapter 3. So I'm going to read verses 5 to 9 here, because I think this is a great picture of what repentance looks like. And the people of Nineveh, this is verse 5, believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's obvious that the Ninevites were greatly disturbed by their sin, but they don't just give lip service to it. They're not just saying, oh, we probably shouldn't have done that. No, they uproot their lives. Everything in their life changes because of this. They mourn. They humble themselves. They own their sin. They recognize something needs to change. They turn from their evil ways and they desperately cry out to God for mercy. They do a complete 180. This is what true repentance looks like. It's recognizing that we are headed in the wrong direction. It's turning from that direction by God's grace and then going the other way. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of things that we get confused with repentance. Sometimes we think that repentance is just feeling guilty. But there's a difference between feeling guilty about something and truly repenting. When we get caught in some sort of sin, we usually feel guilty. But that doesn't mean we have a desire to repent. For example, maybe you're a person who struggles with the sin of gossip. 
And so you uh, get in a situation where you're gossiping about your best friend. And later on, that best friend finds out that you're gossiping and they're deeply hurt by it. If you're a normal person in that circumstance, you probably feel some level of guilt that you were caught in your gossip. But that's not repentance. Repentance is not just feeling bad that you got caught. By the same token, repentance is not kind of admitting your sin, but in the end, making excuses for that sin. This is one of the reasons why our first couple of years of marriage were so difficult. For Tony and I, the first two years were just really hard, and a lot of it was that I didn't own my sin. I would be sharp-tongued or critical or mean or whatever the case was, and in my mind, I was able to convince myself it was never really my fault, at least not entirely. Instead, I would convince myself the reason why I was sharp-tongued or the reason why I was critical was because of something Tony had done. And so in my head, I got into this little narrative, right? And so when I would apologize, I wouldn't really apologize. I'd say things like, well, I'm sorry I was critical, but if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have had to be so critical. Well, that's not apology. That's a justification, right? It's our normal tendency to do this, though, to justify our sin and to defend our actions. But let's be clear, that too is not repentance. Repentance means owning our sin and taking full responsibility. That's one of the things that Ninevites do so well in this passage. They don't make excuses for their sin. They don't try to lessen the severity of their sin. They don't try to defend themselves. Instead, they acknowledge, yeah, we are wicked. We are violent, and we need to turn from our ways. Repentance is recognizing your wrong, hating your sin, turning from it, and crying out to God. Now, here's why all of this matters. Because repentance is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In Acts 2, when the crowd is hearing the gospel message, and they're asking, they're, they're cut to the heart, the word tells us in Acts 2, 38 and 39. They're cut to the heart and they cry out, what shall we do? This is what Peter says in response. The first word he says is repent. This is a trend that continues throughout the book of Acts. As Peter's preaching Acts three nineteen, he says this, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. In Acts 20, verse 21, Paul speaks of how he testified to both Jews and Greeks of their need for repentance toward God and their need for faith in Jesus. In Acts 26, 20, Paul again is recounting how he declared to peoples everywhere that they needed to repent and turn to God. At its core, to be a Christian means that we have repented of our sin and trusted Christ. When we see the repentance of the Ninevites in Jonah 3, we shouldn't think, oh, what a cool story. It's awesome. No, instead what we should think is, here is an example for us to follow. In fact, Jesus makes this very argument or this very connection in Matthew chapter 12. Now you can turn ahead to Matthew 12, just a few books to the right actually. The first book in the New Testament, Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41. And actually, just for the sake of context here, let's go back to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Verse 39, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is the passage we read last week. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then here's the next verse. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So here's the argument that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 12. He's making what's known as a lesser to greater argument. He's saying that if the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, he's saying how much more, that's the lesser part, how much more should we repent now? 
because something greater than Jonah is here. And that something greater is a someone. It is a person. It is Jesus. Now I wonder if the reason why so many of our churches are filled with people who are just cultural Christians. In other words, so many people who are not genuine Christians. I wonder if the reason why that's the case is because so many people have stopped preaching the message of repentance. They've stopped preaching the message of Acts. They've stopped preaching the message of Jonah. Believing in Jesus does not mean that you simply intellectually acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for sin. Jesus is not just another belief that you add to. You don't believe in Jesus in the same way that you believe that Chick-fil-A is the greatest fast food restaurant. Even though Chick-fil-A may be the greatest fast food restaurant, it's different than believing in Jesus, right? Or maybe you believe that democracy is the best form of government or that capitalism is the best form of an economic system or whatever the case is. It's not the same as believing in Jesus. To believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you just intellectually agree. It means that you've repented and turned to Christ. It means that you are walking in one way, and by the grace of God, you turn and you go the other, and you believe. Now, to be clear, the reason why you go the other way is because of the grace of God. God is the one who will open your eyes to see your guilt. God is the one who will give you the desire to repent. God is the one who will enable you to see that Christ is the only answer. Listen. It is miraculous that the entire city of Nineveh repents of their sins and turns from their wicked ways. It's miraculous, but it is no less a miracle when any of us repent of our sins and trust Christ. The message of the gospel, again, this is Ephesians 2, is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That in our natural state, we have no desire to turn from Him and no desire to turn, or turn to Him and no desire to turn from our sin. And so you can't explain how a person in that state who is dead who a person who has no desire for God would suddenly turn to God unless God opens their eyes, unless God changes something. Right? We call that regeneration. And God gives us a new heart so that we can see things in a new way. The thing about the Ninevites is they are awful people. They do awful things, but their story is our story. We may express our sin in different ways. But apart from Christ, our hearts are just as rebellious against God. We are just as liable to the judgment of God as the Ninevites. And like the Ninevites, our only hope is founding and repenting and turning to God. Now on this side of the cross, we may have a clearer picture of what that means to turn to God. We know that to turn to God means to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. It means recognizing that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose three days later. And make no mistake about it. That is exactly what some of you here today need to do. You need to repent and place your faith in Christ. By God's grace, you need to turn from the direction you're headed in and turn the other way and place your faith in Christ. And by the way, I'm not saying that today because I have some sort of contractual obligation as a pastor to say that. Maybe you think that the reason why I bring this up every week is because I'm supposed to. That they told me when they hired me, you just got to talk about Jesus every week. And every week I'm like, all right, how am I going to fit it in? And I just figure out a way to do it. No, that's not why I do this. I do this because I'm convinced that in a group this size, there are people here every week who do not know Jesus. Oh, and it grieves me. And I'm, I'm begging of you to turn. The predicament that you're in is just as serious as the predicament the Ninevites are in. Yes, it's true. Maybe you have more than 40 days before the judgment of God comes. Maybe you have 40 years, but it's also true you may have less. Maybe you have 40 hours. Like the Ninevites, the righteous judgment of God is hanging over you, and I'm pleading with you to turn to Christ. The other reason, though, we preach Jesus is because 
Listen, this message transforms us if we are believers. I would hope that as we read this story of the Ninevites and seek God's mercy and compassion, we would be moved to worship. I would hope that we would already be looking forward to next week where we can hear again about Jesus and, and this week in between where we can read the Bible and learn more about it. I would hope that we are moved to worship. I would hope that we would see the Ninevites' salvation and recognize our salvation in this story. I would hope that because we love God and because we worship Him, there would be a daily desire to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. I would hope that we would look at our lives and see areas of sin and we would remember that we've already been set free from our bondage to sin, that we've already been turned from sin to Christ, that we're no longer captive to that old way of thinking. I would hope then that we would make a daily habit of repentance, not in a once and for all salvation way, but in a daily I want to keep step with the Spirit way. Believers, let me ask you this. In what ways are you not living out your salvation? In what ways are you not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? In what ways are you not reflecting the fact that you've been brought from death to life? In what ways are you not living out your faith in a way that's consistent of what it means to be a follower of Christ? In what ways are you living like the world? I suspect that as I ask those questions, there's maybe one, maybe there's several, but maybe there's one thing in particular that comes to your mind. And you think to yourself, yeah, I'm not walking a consistent way. Some of you have a sin that you've been struggling with for a long time. A sin that you know if your believer needs to be put to death because you've already been set free and you just want to live out that reality. And so whatever it is, I would just encourage you if you're a believer today to pray and ask God to help you overcome that sin, that you would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Not because you have to in order to earn your salvation, but because you want to live out and practice what you already know is true, that you've been set free, that you've repented, you're trusting in Christ. Listen, if you ask me, it's a shame that Jonah chapter 3 is only mentioned in passing when we tell the story. And it's a shame because I think it's maybe even more amazing than what happened in the first two chapters. The greatest miracle in Jonah is not that man lives inside the fish. It's an entire city repents. But come to think of it, the miracle of Jonah is that God saves any sinners, even people like you and me. But praise God that he does. Praise God that he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah. Time and time again, it feels like we're being hit with a hammer of truth. That we're being reminded over and over and over again of our own sinfulness and of your greatness, of your mercy and compassion. We're praying today that we would look our eyes upwards towards the cross where we see your justice and your mercy meet. And that we would have a desire, if we haven't already done so, to repent of our sins and trust Christ for salvation. And if we have, to daily live out the fruits of that repentance. Not because we have to, but because we get to. God, thank you for the miracle of regeneration. Thank you for the fact that you bring dead people to life. And we're praying that this week we would live, for those who are already believers, as if we know this is true. That we were once dead, but now we're alive. That we were once lost, but now we're found. Help us to live out this reality this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.